Welcome to the RCMB podcast. Today, we have part three in our three-part series, Interview with the Editors. We sit down with Dr. Paul Schumacher and Dr. Oliver Eichelberg. Dr. Schumacher is Professor of Pediatrics, Cell and Developmental Biology, and Medicine at Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine. Dr. Oliver Eichelberg is Professor of Medicine, Pulmonary Sciences, and Critical Care at University of Colorado School of Medicine. So, Dr. Schumacher, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you became an editor. Oh, well, um, I guess the best way to describe myself is I'm a scientist. That's what my day job is. I enjoy doing science. I've been doing it for a long time. And I think that uh, to be a good editor, I think you have to be a good scientist because editors have to judge science. They have to weigh the opinions of reviewers and other editors in and the rebuttals of the authors for papers, and that requires some scientific judgment. So I think being a, a good scientist uh, is an important, that's an important sort of characteristic of a good editor. And, and Dr. Eichelberg, tell me, tell me a little about yourself and, and, and how you became an editor. I'm a physician scientist. Uh, I think, indeed, you have to be very good at science to be an editor. And it, it so happened to me that I was asked uh, for a couple of journals uh, to be on the editor's board. Um, my most important um, editor assignment right now is that I'm an associate editor for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, the so-called uh, Blue Journal for the ATS, and I'm serving as an associate editor since 2010. I also act as handling editor for uh, Lung Biology Disease Section of uh, Public Library of Science, Plus One. Uh, scientific reports, the uh, Nature um, Open Access paper. I'm on the editorial board of the Red Journal as well as well as the European Respiratory Journal. Um, and to me, editing and evaluating and communicating science is fun. I think uh, science is the greatest thing we can do in this world. Uh, there's a lot of uh, value to scientific progress. That's how we solve problems and have solved problems all our life. Um, and, you know, being part of that process is really fun. I mean, I love uh, reading papers. I love evaluating papers. Um, and that's what I do in these jobs. I think the most important um, characteristic besides uh, loving science really, and I've, I've come to learn that uh, over the past years uh, in, in many ways, is to be as unbiased as possible. I think that is one of the critical uh, things you have to have as an editor. And, you know, bias comes in many ways. Um, Bias comes in forms of positive bias and in forms of negative bias and forms of, uh, you know, biases towards uh, certain attitudes, what have you. And I think the most, the most difficult bias to balance as an editor is the positive bias um, in that, you know, you see papers from a lot of very good groups, but you still have to be very, very unbiased in evaluating those. Um, and that's not easy. That's uh, probably one of the hardest uh, parts. And communicating uh, decisions is one of the hardest parts uh, in our job. So uh, you see a lot of papers, Dr. Eichelberg. Tell me what you think makes a really good manuscript. The really good manuscript, um, you know, you, you can. I think you can tell a really good manuscript uh, in two aspects, basically. One is, you know, very immediate feeling, and then the second one, which is the more important one, is the one after you have gone through a manuscript, uh, you know, way beyond the first sight. I think the first uh, impression of any manuscript, of a good manuscript, is excitement. If I see a manuscript, <coughs> excuse me, 
that comes through the editorial process and you open uh, the manuscript for the first time. So when you, when you work as an editor, you first see the title and the authors, and then you look at the file, you open the file, it takes a bit, and then you first look at the abstract, the figures, and then you read the manuscript. And I think when you look at the title, the authors, and the abstract, if you're not excited after having read that, it's not a good sign. Um, I think really you have to be excited uh, by a manuscript, and, and that's, I think, the prerequisite of a good, good manuscript. Uh, there's much more to a good manuscript than just being excited and just being cutting edge, and those levels really reveal themselves after you read through the manuscript and looked at the figures. Um, to me, there's always like two levels of evaluating manuscripts. You know, one is an absolute level, you know, independent of what journal you're editing for, it's got to be cutting edge science and it's got to be good science according to good laboratory practice. Figures have to be sound, the language has to, have to be good, and that's across every journal. That's one standard. The second standard is, you know, when it comes to novelty, mechanistic insight, and how much data is provided in the manuscript, that's very journal-specific. Um, you know, in ATS, we probably have a bit of a different view at the blue journal, the red journal, and the analyst when it comes to that second level of evaluation. The first level is across every journal, be it nature or plus one, has to be good laboratory practice, it has to be good science, has to be well written. There's no discussion about that. So, uh, uh, Dr. Schumacher, what about you? How do, how do you decide if a manuscript is, is good or, or, or worth sort of passing along to reviewers? Right. Well, uh, at the Red Journal, we look at a manuscript and, and uh, as a as a way to tell a story. So you've done some experiments, you have some data, and, and you have a story to put together, and, and you need the data to substantiate the story that you're trying to tell. And and a, a great paper, you know, begins I think with a with a with a with a solid scientific premise. The work that's gone before has shown a number of things that 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 are well accepted, and that the scientific premise of the work the reason that you did the study is valid. Then, looking at the paper as a whole, we're interested in seeing, you know, if this, is, if this story is true, what impact will this story have on the field? Will it be incremental? Will it take the field forward just a little step? Will it be dramatic? Will, will it open people's eyes and will it change the way people think about a particular paradigm? Will it change the way we think about that topic because, I mean, ultimately, as scientists, when we write papers, we're trying to change the way people think about things. And so when you can write a paper that impacts the way people think about an important topic, then that's a really impactful paper and a really important paper and one that deserves to be published. A paper that has just um, incremental additional insight or that just replicates in some way work that's already well established is, is a little less exciting because it doesn't really change the way we think about a topic. It just reinforces what we think we already know. I think the, uh, uh, Oliver mentioned the importance of novelty. I think an impactful paper, an important paper, is going to have some novelty to it. People aren't going to have done or thought about doing this before. And, and novel papers are really the ones that open up your eyes and get you excited about it when you first read the title or read the abstract. At the, at the Red Journal, we're putting a lot of emphasis 
on mechanistic studies, studies that tell us about why things work and what their relationships are. I mean, we all know that, that you can have an association where A correlates with B, but that doesn't necessarily tell you that A causes B or that B causes A. It just tells you that they're associated, whereas a, a mechanistic study tells you about cause and effect. And cause and effect is really interesting. And other authors, other scientists, love to read papers that convey mechanistic information because the mechanism that's described may help them do their own science or understand their own science better. So we put a high emphasis on, on studies that tell us about the relationships, the cause and effect relationships, the mechanistic relationships that drive the interactions that we're describing in the figures and the tables uh, in the manuscript. So, so overall, the manuscript, I agree, has to be well-written. It has to be clear. It has to tell you what the conclusions are, but also has to tell you kind of what the limits of those conclusions are, how broad they can be and, and what their limits are. And, and it has to start with a, a valid start, starting point, and it has to have a set of conclusions that are pretty well established, pretty well supported by the data. And the better the paper, the more carefully the investigators have laid out the studies that have re resulted in the data that then substantiate the conclusions that they're making. So we look at all of those factors in a paper, and, and so the, the, you know, the, the, the greater the novelty, the better the scientific premise of it, the more thorough the experiments are, the validity of the conclusions uh, all play into uh, just the priority score that we give to manuscripts when we're trying to decide whether we want to publish them or not. Um, so, uh, Dr. Schumacher, what are some ways that you've seen authors sort of self-sabotage their own good science with the way they prepare their manuscripts? Well, I would say that the preparation of the manuscript is less important than the work that was done in preparing to write the manuscript. So if authors are trying to get a quick and dirty paper, and so they're doing sort of physiological experiments or, or biological experiments that involve replicate studies, and they show an N of one or an N of two or sometimes an N of three with you know, big variance among those there was a small number of samples, then that sort of undermines the scientific validity. It, it, it's less convincing to readers when the, the amount of data is small. I think if you look at really good papers, you often see that, that the authors have done an experiment and they've tested something from not just one direction, but they've tested it a couple of different ways. So doing a set of experiments that, that test some premise, not only you know, with one set of experiments, but with, from a completely different direction with another set and show that those provide consistent findings, well, that strengthens the, you know, the quality of the work that goes into the paper. So, so just to answer your question, I would say, I would say you know, do enough experiments to provide a convincing res result. If there are ways that you can look at something from a couple of different directions, take the time and do that, uh, because otherwise, you know, sending it in and hoping that the reviewers are going to tell you what you need to do to make it a better paper, well, it, it, it might not get that far. So, 
So, uh, so do it well to begin with, and then listen to what the reviewers say and, and how they think that you could make it perhaps even better, and then do your best to try to respond in a, in a, in a substantive way to the suggestions for revision. And, and then you're on the pathway to getting your paper accepted. Uh, Dr. Eichenberg, what about you? Any, any pet peeves that bother you about what authors do when they, they, put, they put together the manuscript or, or put their, together their submission? Well, I think um, we, we see a lot of instances um, where authors make, uh, you know, sort of improvable uh, content. So I would say if you have a really good set of data and the data is very convincing, that, that's the most important part of, of any manuscript, as, as has been discussed before. But still, if you, even if you have like a real good set of data, um, you still have to be able to write it conclusively and to convey the findings to the readers. So I do see frequently manuscripts uh, where if you go through and the reviewers go through, they're lost. You know, and, and reviewers uh, give us that impression and editors can see it also. So even if you have very good data, you still have to be able to tell a story to convince the reader, i.e. the editor or the reviewers, that your story is worth telling. So you have to have this red thread that goes through your whole manuscript and that, that is able to convey to the reader why you did what you did, why it's important, and why it's going to have an impact to the field. If authors are unable to, to put that in words, you know, and sometimes there is a language barrier, particularly when you reach out to communities uh, outside of the United States or Europe, there is sometimes a language barrier. But there are solutions for that. Then authors can actually give that to professional writers or at least copy editors and make sure that that part, which you know sometimes is just a formality, is actually addressed. And if it reads well, you actually convey your data much better than if it doesn't read well. So that, that would be one thing I think that I can imagine we encounter uh, frequently. I would also say that another aspect that I think authors should really pay attention to is pay attention to detail. You know, even if you have the greatest data, the greatest novelty in the world, make sure that your figures are aligned carefully, uh, that your figures are prepared according to journal standards. Um, we do have to send a lot of papers back because the figures don't adhere to the standard put forth by the ATS on, on all of our journals' websites, for example. <clears throat> and those are all preventable mistakes, in my view, because they really just require careful reading of the submission guidelines and actually sometimes prevent a paper from ultimately getting published, unnecessarily so sometimes. So I think attention to detail, make sure you tell the story in a very comprehensive fashion, make sure it's, you, know, you digest the language so that it's easy for any reader to really uh, get the main points across. I think it's very important, but it's sometimes neglected in the submissions we see. I would say those are the two most preventable um, things that happen during manuscript submission. And, you know, if addressed properly before submission, they would actually provide a much uh, more swift and expedited review process, in my view. So, so Dr. Eckelberg, are there any myths that you hear about the review process or the editorial process that you think are worth uh, dispelling? Oh, man, we can write a book about that. <laughs> I think, you know, I think every, every uh, editor that's handling manuscripts has a long list uh, in his uh, forever folder of emails that you know occur during the editing process. Um, let, let me structure my answer a bit. So I think one of the one of the biggest myths on on side of the authors is 
that uh, for journals where you are able to suggest reviewers, for most journals uh, we're dealing with, you can suggest reviewers that you know you would say are experts in reviewing this manuscript, so those are the preferred reviewers. And then you also have the option in most journals to uh, exclude reviewers. You can say, well, this reviewer has a, an apparent conflict of interest, and I would ask that this reviewer is not an expert reviewing my manuscript. So a very big myth is that you know, the preferred reviewers are not always kind reviewers, and the opposed reviewers are not always unkind reviewers, much to the contrary. Um, sometimes the preferred are the really unkind ones, and the opposed are the really kind ones. So um, there is nothing predictable about, uh, about that. Um, I think it's also, you know, in the communication with the journal, one thing is, you know, know the editors and know the staff. Uh, sometimes you get the weirdest email that is addressed to an editorial assistant as if that is the, you know, uh, person that makes the ultimate decision on the manuscript. So those are easy things, you know, to address. I mean, they're available on the website and, and you can really be on top of who's handling or not your manuscript. Um, I think really the reviewer thing is, is a huge myth. I think preferred reviewers are not always the kind ones. I think, you know, it, it certainly has influenced my way of suggesting reviewer and that, you know, mostly I don't even suggest anymore um, in order not to, you know, bias anybody. Dr. Schubacher, any, anything that you would like to demystify uh, to the listeners about the review process? Well, I, I agree with uh, Oliver's point that sometimes the sometimes the recommended reviewers by the authors turn out to be the ones who are the most severe critics of, of the work. So, uh, so be careful when you recommend reviewers because you don't actually know what happens behind the scenes. Just to go back to the earlier question of, of sort of things to watch out for when you're putting your paper together, you know, I agree that careful attention so the details of the figures is really important. For example, you know, we sometimes see papers that have uh, immunofluorescence studies, um, uh, sort of micrographs of fluorescing cells or tissue specimens, and, and the, the magnification is so low that you can't actually see in the illustration the points that the authors are trying to make in the figure legend. So, so you know, make sure that the level of magnification in your micrographs is commensurate with with the details that you're trying to show, and that the and that the figures, the the, the illustrations are of high quality. I've seen some papers with with sort of immunofluorescent pictures that were that were so unclear, large globs of fluorescent uh, stuff in the in, in the image, so so uh, you know, that's sort of makes it look like it wasn't done carefully, and that sends a message that I'm not sure you want to send to the reviewers that the whole study was not done with great care. When you have beautiful figures, and not just the graphs, but especially the immunofluorescence or micrographs in the in the in the illustrations, you know when those are really high quality, it goes a long way toward convincing the reviewers that you put the whole thing together very carefully. Also, you know, the issue of language, I have to underscore that. We're, the Red Journal is a very international journal. We get, we get uh, submissions from around the world, and not everyone speaks English as a native language, and we understand that. There are some uh, opportunities at the journal for helping with that. 
But if possible, if you can get a native English speaker to proofread your paper before you submit it, that's always good because the first issue, the first version that we see is the one that you've submitted. And if you've already had a careful English speaker go through that and read it carefully and make sure that there aren't unclear phrases or awkward grammar, then it helps us give a fair evaluation to your paper when we finally get to look at it. And, and then in terms of the reviewers, we, we of course look at the reviewers that you might recommend, but being scientists ourselves, uh, we have not only ourselves to rely on, but we have the deputy editors for the journal, the associate editors, and then we have this large editorial board of, of experts in areas. And I know many of these people and rely on on people that I know to provide high quality reviews. So even though you might suggest a particular reviewer for your paper, you know, we may or may not use that person because you know, there have been times when I looked at the recommended reviewer and I happen to know that you know, the past 10 papers that I've sent to this person have all come back, uh, reject, 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 and I'd rather not risk your paper with that. So we try to send papers to reviewers that we trust and whose judgment we think is well calibrated for the scope, uh, scientific scope and the quality scope of the journal. And, and you know, so that's something that we can do for you uh, based on what we've learned about, about uh, reviewers and their, and their objectivity and the clarity with which they see your paper and tell you back in their reviews, you know, so what, what they like about it and what they didn't like about it. So, so Dr. Schumacher, any advice you'd give a junior investigator starting out, uh, maybe submitting their first uh, journal, either a lead author or a senior author, um, that, that might be more uh, specific for a junior investigator? Well, I would say <laughs> for lung-related research in basic science, Think about the Red Journal as a good place to send your paper. Why is that? Well, first of all, because getting high-quality reviews is important for the outcome of your paper, whether it's published or not. Uh, the, for many of the papers that we accept at the Red Journal, we've been commissioning editorials. And so if you're a, a, an assistant professor or a, or a postdoctoral fellow or a, a clinical fellow and you're publishing your first paper, having a paper come out with an associate editorial is always a good thing. It's good if you're on the, on the way toward being promoted to be able to say to the promotions committee, look, I wrote these papers and the journal chose to commission editorials to discuss these. So, you know, that's good for you. Uh, and and, uh, and the, you know, the scope of the Red Journal is, is, is quite broad and includes uh, all of the all of the science areas that would be of interest to uh, members of the American Thoracic Society. So, so think about the Red Journal as a good place to submit your your papers. And and furthermore, I would I would say that that you know the things we've discussed in this conversation earlier that is you know paying attention to detail, making sure that your paper is clearly written, and very importantly giving it to a colleague, sometimes even a layperson, a spouse, a significant other, or a friend who doesn't do science to read to see 
if there are confusing points or questions that, that come out of the paper. They may not understand all of the scientific details, but in the introduction and in the discussion, you know, if it's if it's written in an awkward way or they think it could be written better, they will tell you, and and that can be helpful uh, for both scientists and non-scientists to take a look at your paper to make sure that it's as good as it can be before you send it in uh, because you know, the first look that we get at it is going to be important because not every paper is sent out for review. And so, so make sure it's the best it can be at the time you're ready to submit. Dr. Eichelberg, what about you? Any, any uh, parting advice for a, for a junior investigator? Yeah, so I mean, I, I remember where the times, you know, when I submitted my very first papers as a corresponding author and I was, you know, responsible for everything from beginning to end during the submission process. And, and I remember very well that during the whole process, you know, lots of, the, lots of you know, what's happening during manuscript review, submission, review, resubmission really is a, is a big black box to most people, particularly junior people. And, you know, I've come to learn over the past years how that black box largely functions due to my involvement in many editorial boards. And the one thing I can probably, you know, I should tell all junior people here is the first thing is, you know, all of the people that deal with the manuscript review in the journals we talked about have very good intentions. Usually everybody wants to make a submission, a paper that is publishable. And lots of people work for free for at least the society journals as reviewers to provide their time, you know, in trying to make the paper better. And I think uh, it's, you know, junior investigators should know that by and large people have very good intentions. It's very rare that you have a, you know, inflammatory person trying to, you know, be overly negative about a manuscript. It does happen clearly, but it, it's rather the exception than the rule. So I think the process in it by itself is, it's a very solid and well-intended process. Um, and it really is important for junior investigators to, you know, pick up the speed once you get the reviews back. I think, you know, submitting it and everything we talked about today, how to really make a paper, a, a good paper for an initial submission is the one thing. I think you need a completely different or additional skill set then to respond to the review process. That's something we haven't talked about as of yet today. So, you know, how do you deal with a major revision, a minor revision, a reject? And I think that is, is also something that particularly junior investigators should take to heart. The first thing is editors and reviewers are well-intended people. So if you get a review back and the invitation to resubmit, for example, a major revision, you will need to resubmit the manuscript with lots of changes and lots of additional experiments. And on top, you will need to resubmit a so-called rebuttal letter in, in which you address every point that the editor as well as the reviewers, uh, you know, address during the review process. <clears throat> One thing that I sometimes see is that people get, for example, overly defensive because they think somebody criticizes my work uh, due to a wrong reason. Don't be defensive in the rebuttal letter in general. Be very cautious, be very kind but be very definitive in your answers without being offensive or defensive. I think that is something that cannot be understated because the people invest a lot of time and if you get back a letter um, for resubmission and it's, it's very defensive, offensive and says, oh, the reviewer doesn't uh, understand our work and you know, I'd rather point out that we know much more, th this is already biasing every person that's sending the manuscript, uh, unnecessarily so. 
So that, that would be one advice uh, on addition of the initial submission pro, uh, process. So if you do submit a rebuttal letter for a major or minor revision, address every point in a very kind, definitive, but kind manner um, and voice. And the second thing is um, address all points in written terms. Uh, sometimes, you know, we get back uh, manuscripts and you have a gazillion of experiments that are asked and obviously nobody expects you to address every single point from five reviewers or four reviewers for a manuscript submission, uh, but you, you know, experimentally, but you have to at least address them in writing and say why you don't think this is a sensible experiment at this time because it's made for future studies, for example. Um, address every point in written terms. Nobody expects you to address every criticism from every reviewer 100%. Everybody expects you to address the summarizing paragraph of the handling editor. So if the handling editor says, here you have three reviewers, um, they all ask a lot of experiments, additional experiments, in order for us to consider the manuscript, but I would highlight that the following are ultimately important. So address everything experimentally, if possible, to the editor's comments, and address everything in writing from every reviewer, but you don't necessarily have to address those experimentally. I always work on the assumption that, you know, as long as you address, like, 75% of all of the criticisms, experimental criticisms, I think you're safe because nobody expects you to do the full Monty. I think the, the other um, you know, important thing for, for junior authors is, okay, you go through a submission, you go through a revision, everything fine, ultimately published, great. Uh, what if you get a rejection back? Sometimes you get a rejection, sometimes, in rarer times, you get a rejection that maybe is unjustified. So there is a process in place that is called the appeal process. And I don't have the official numbers right now, but I think around 10%, somewhere between 10 and 15% of decisions are appealed for our society journal. That is a very legit process. I would encourage every author to appeal to the editorial board or editorial office uh, of the journal you're submitting to, but you have to have very solid grounds to appeal a decision. Um, I think sometimes we see appeals just based on the fact that, whoa, I disagree with the reviewers because they were overly negative and I don't think that's really justified and since they were overly negative, they've been biased and so I want you to reconsider the manuscript. That won't fly. But sometimes reviewers, you know, have some opinion of experiments that need to be done that maybe don't need to be done or they, well, sometimes they misunderstand a, a submission also. It's usually up to the handling editor to uh, highlight these points, but, but you know, sometimes they may oversee it. So if you have very good grounds for an appeal, appeal to the journal. But you need to be very specific in why you appeal and why you think it's scientifically not justified, not because out of emotion, but because out of science. And I think the last word of advice for me is, uh, and I've done that mistake multiple times, but I really, you know, if you get a negative decision, a rejection, uh, you know, a superb major revision, before you respond to anybody, sleep a night about it. Just, you know, don't respond immediately. Let it rest, sleep over it, and respond the next day. Here's what I'd like to add, and that is that getting a paper accepted in a journal is a bit of a game. I don't mean that in a cynical way, but there are some things that you have to do to be successful in getting your paper accepted. And in the old days, years and years and years ago, salesmen used to come to households carrying encyclopedias or vacuum cleaners or, or brushes or things like that that they would sell door to door. And 
and the salesmen always knew that if the if they couldn't get into the front door and sit down in the living room with the person who was going to make the decision about whether to buy it or not, they weren't going to get a sale. If the door was closed in their face, the game was over, time to move on. So the first step was to sort of get in the front door and get into the living room so they could open up their display suitcase. And, and that's analogous to submitting your paper and getting the editors to send it out to reviewers because sometimes papers that are done very poorly will never see, never be sent to reviewers. They'll just be rejected. So getting your paper in the door for and getting reviews is the first challenge, and so it has to be done well to do that. And then just to follow up on what Oliver said, if, if they have asked you for new experiments or there are things that you can do to respond to the comments by adding some new experiments, you should always do that. Because when you've, if you're able, for example, to give your point-by-point -point responses, your rebuttal to the reviewer comments, and each of your points starts with new experiments were done to address this point, and then you describe what the experiments were, then it becomes very difficult for the editor to look at that and say, oh, I'm going to reject this paper because it's the best way to be totally responsive to the points that the reviewers raised. So when I'm writing papers myself and I can address points with new experiments, I always start the rebuttal by saying, by saying, you know, excellent point, new experiments were conducted to address this point, and here's what the data showed. And it almost doesn't matter that much which way the data goes, but the fact that you've done the experiments to show responsiveness to the reviewer comments, I think is, is very, very important. Because when a, when a paper has been reviewed, it's been revised once or twice, then, then a reviewer, then, sorry, an editor has to think carefully about, you know, why they could possibly reject this paper. You know, it, it's, it's, if the case is so strong to accept it, that the likelihood that it would be rejected is, um, is very, very small. So, so um, I get it to a state that's as, as good as it can be when you send it in, and then do a really careful job of rebutting the reviewer's comments, and, and your paper is very likely to be accepted. This has all been amazing advice, very practical, and I'm sure lots of uh, people listening are going to really appreciate uh, all the information uh, and the advice that you've given. Uh, so thank you for sitting down and joining us today. Thank you. This has been fun. Thanks a lot, both.
Thank you for joining us for the RSKB podcast.